This is Deepa Narayan, social science researcher and host of What's a Man podcast, research-based podcast in which I explore masculinity based on interviews with over 250 educated middle and upper class boys and men in Delhi, Mumbai and other cities as well and with special guests. My goal is simple, to open up the conversation about men and masculinity in a non-judgmental way. with compassion and deep listening engage with us subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platforms spotify apple hubhopper this episode is divided into three segments you will first hear the pattern of responses from the over 250 boys and men from the middle and upper classes we interviewed for this podcast In segment 2 you will hear from Akshat Harbola who set up Spotify the music streaming platform in India. Next is Akshay. He was a division chief in a large firm in Mumbai and who like so many suddenly lost his job. We end with Parmesh Sahani 
who took on the challenge of creating a welcoming space for the LGBTQA community at Godrich Company. Across cultures, men's core identity is to be a provider. You are a provider of the family and if you are not, then what you are? And uh, if you're not adhering to what is uh, the societal norms of uh, making a life of your uh, your living, then what? The expectation to be the breadwinner of the family, to take care of the family. Like you have to be the breadwinner. Uh, even like you grew older, but you have to earn. You don't have any other option. You have to be the breadwinner. Otherwise, uh, you would be looked at a downward way in a very in a humiliating way. The code word for provider we heard over and over again was responsibility. The kind of responsibility given to me, which includes earning or something else, you know, that that responsibility I really hate being a man. Being a boy, I have to uh, support my family. Uh, it is not a burden on me, but it is uh, it is a, a responsibility for me also to uh, take over all the charges uh, and all the all the responsibilities on my shoulder uh, and also support my family. We asked boys and men, when did you realize that you have to become the provider and earn money for the family? From our childhood, we have been taught like that, that no matter what happens, you're a man. For example, you go to a shop entire day, you work, but you don't get money. You come home without money or you had a fight or you failed at every steps. But when you have to come back home, you have to come back home as a hero. Probably from the time um, I entered college. It, it did exist before that, but this feeling strengthened itself when I was in college because I could see the amount of effort. It takes up so much um, emotionally, financially. Boys start thinking early about how they will have to repay their parents the heavy debt of gratitude. I'm often thinking about my first paycheck. Okay, I'm 21 years old. I, I turned 22 this year. And uh, even that idea of giving your first paycheck to your parents and all that, I, I feel that more now. Um, yeah. I do have expectations that I put on myself. Um, it only feels fair that I find a way to repay that. So I, I keep pushing myself to repay that gratitude in more like tangible ways. Not earning or not meeting family expectations to keep everyone happy keeps youth and young men on edge. The biggest fear would be not being able to provide enough for the family or people around me to kind of survive. And also, if they are not happy, uh, if I see that they are compromising on things or they are, maybe they are cutting corners and, and it's not something that I would like. Uh, I want to do much more than just live for myself um, because I want to have enough so that I can like, give that back to my family in the future in whatever way possible. That pressure is always there, which is, you know, now uh, now you've reached 27, Nishant. Like, what are you going to do next? Like, when are you planning to settle down? Uh, how are your finances coming along? What's the next step? Most men said they want to provide for their families, but men also feel unacknowledged for the sacrifices they make, unappreciated and resentful 
especially as women's roles change and because the silence about men continues. You provide from clothes to education to food for your family. But what they see is mother buying the clothes, mother cooking the food, mother reading the stories. They don't understand where those things come from. As a businessman, I start working at 7 o'clock and it can goes all the way to 10. But thing is, the uh, kids don't know that. Kids don't know that and uh, there's their simple ratio. Whoever spend more time with them, they will talk to them more. When I come home, she's sleeping. Nowadays, uh, it is about that feminism for women being a part of a housewife, being t- taking care of those homely duties. It's itself considered a, such an epitome of work. They are doing everything for the family. It has totally flipped. I find a marriage or a family, every member have to give equally. The moment you start demeaning another one, the moment you start looking down on the other members, is where you think starts goes wrong. Nikhil, who works as the head of a media company, said what many men told us in bits and pieces about change and flux, women sacrificed careers, women not earning as much in reality, but the expectations have changed and grown. Men are not only the primary provider, it's plus, 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 and more pluses thrown in. Okay, so that's why I should... Uh, so, so here's... It's like this. So I'm I'm still... I mean, I'm the primary bread, bread owner in my, in my house. And it's my career and, you know, my sort of uh, role or my job that really, you know, brings in the bread and brings in the butter and sort of keep... My wife obviously has a career, but because of our moves... You know, she has had to quit her job. So it is my career which is really driving the engine. I'm I'm trying to search for the right words. What has changed? Can you talk about it? I have to be the perfect father. I have to spend quality time with my son. I have to, you know, uh, I have to teach him, you know, what it means to be a man. I have to teach him sports. I have to spend quality time with him. I'm expected to be, always be romantic to my wife. I have to plan these little things for her. Treat her like a woman, uh, you know, uh, not just treat her as, uh, you know, as as a wife, right? So don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't mean any of those things. Mm -hmm. It's just that I think, okay, so let me just try and rephrase what I, what I've circled around. I think somewhere that, that, you know, that on the face of it, traditional gender roles seem to have changed on the face of it. Uh, But I think in reality, it really hasn't to that extent. Can you talk about the struggle? It's just that it just becomes difficult to switch hats to now think, oh, I'm now in, I have to play this role now versus I have to play that role now versus I'm now, oh, now I have to be a boyfriend versus now I have to be a responsible father versus now I have to be the provider and, you know, uh, do so on and so forth. And it just feels like I'm holding on to, you know, several different threads and I can't drop any of them. I can't tell my wife that, oh, I'm not going to work now. I want to take a sabbatical and, you know, you need to be now provide for the family. I can't do that. I can't tell her, look, I don't want to be involved in anything to do with the house. I want you to manage the whole thing. You know, you, you have money, you can, you can pay for domestic help. You can, I can't say that, oh, you know, like what I want you to just manage my son and his bringing him up and I'll just play with him once in a while and, you know, whatever. I can't do that either. Um, and I, and I can't even say as a man, I want to just take off and I want to spend time with my friends. And, you know, I don't want to socialize with you on the weekend. You know, I, 
so it's just that the the women in our lives now we are expected to be their friends their lovers their companions um uh, uh you know and yet we are supposed to be the providers and take care of them and yet we cannot treat them as inferior in any way we have to sort of treat them as equals we have to you know give them the respect that they do because obviously they are as educated as we are and they have made as many sacrifices and as many commitments towards their careers as we have right so somehow it just feels like there's an awful lot of uh, awful lot of hats and awful lot of sort of things to juggle and hold on to uh I don't know if does that make sense? Yes, yes, there's a lot of tension and a lot of lot of expectations to carry. What do you think needs to happen to manage to help men manage these complex set of expectations? I think I mean the cliche would really be communication, right? You communicate better with people around you. Clearly, many men are trying to adjust and want to adjust and afraid of speaking up. Every human being wants to be respected and appreciated and the only way forward is to speak the truth slowly listen and take turns yes and negotiate again and again slowly and experiment and stay in conversation with each other about how to meet each other's needs What's a man Masculinity Podcast in India by Deepa Narayan. Our partners are Hub Hopper, the gender lab who work with adolescent boys and girls on gender awareness, chup circles, safe spaces for conversation, and Youth Ki Awaaz, the largest online platform for youth voices. This podcast is supported by the American Center New Delhi. The opinions presented in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the American Center or the U.S. government. everything is in flux it's not easy to navigate but some men are navigating well akshat harbola is the head of marketing and strategy and operations at spotify india he lives in mumbai with his wife and 3 year old daughter welcome akshat thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me i'm just so delighted Thanks for having me Deepa really glad I'm here and you're in Mumbai is that right right now I'm in Mumbai great so when you think of yourself as a man what are the first three words that come to your mind the first three words that come to my mind uh would be father uh husband and uh i guess uh you know a bit of an explorer So I think those three words father husband explorer I almost feel like you know that's my job. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start from explorer. What what does that mean to you? You know I'm seen by my family as the troublemaker in chief at home which uh, which basically means that I I'm responsible for coming up with these crazy ideas about what the family should be doing. Okay, let's let's move to Goa. or or let's move to another country or let's move from delhi to mumbai or let's go on a trek to you know this remote hill in garhwal so were you like this when you were young as well as a kid uh, you know maybe before i was 11 and 12 this phase where uh, i was i was really a very naughty very 
fun loving kind of a person who's who's always getting out getting in trouble but also getting all the love and affection from the family then akshit hit the teenage years and years of anxiety which he realized only now looking back stomach churning no energy listless i was the master of nothing the master of nothing means that I I I wasn't really into anything but but the vivid image of of those teen years you know before I I sort of became an adult would be me lying down in my sofa you know reclined at 70 degrees with a bottle of 2 liter bottle of coke on one side chips on the other side and watching <laughs> re- reruns of terminator 2 the arnold schwarzenegger movie I wasn't really interested in anything I I wasn't deep into music at that point i wasn't deep into sports i wasn't deep into academics pretty much nothing yeah so you weren't actively defiant how did you emerge out of this doing nothing because you're clearly a master of many things now yeah so uh, i would say you know i guess between 18 and 22 years of age i would have mm-hmm. gone through this let's call it project fix akshat Right. Uh, fix Akshat. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, so obviously, it wasn't there was no name to the project. And, you know, it's only in hindsight. It, it, something, something changed inside of me, uh, where where I just became a lot more intentional and serious about uh, things I needed to achieve. But also, you know, starting to getting get intentional about what are my hobbies. what am i interested in right what does religion means so i started taking on leadership mm-hmm. roles within college societies and and became active as a debater as a quizzer uh, did a lot of things outside of college as well so you know one one thing that that i remember is i think during vacations i signed up for door to door door selling akshat led a charmed life He surfed India's growth wave, standing up all the way. The best schools, the best colleges, McKinsey, Coca-Cola, Google, and finally Spotify. He said he gets bored easily. He loves an entrepreneurial challenge. He's the man who started Spotify in India. Not everyone can do what you're doing, right? So, what kind of challenges do you enjoy? And tell us the tell us a little bit about the early days and the growth story of Spotify. The reason for me it was like a no-brainer that I have to do this. It's 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 an entrepreneurial opportunity where you're building something from scratch. It's in an in industry or a cons- it's a consumer product that you're passionate about as a user as well. Forget about the industry. In terms of the early days, I, I'll actually tell you a story which maybe uh, illustrates the one-man hustle of the early days. There was an internal conference in Singapore where I had to fly in and talk about what what we were planning when it comes to Spotify in India. So it so happened that you know in in the preceding months I'd been traveling a lot. I hadn't spent a lot of time with the family, and my wife had some free time. So we decided that both both my wife and my daughter can go with me to Singapore and spend some time. And then after I'm done with my work, I'll I'll take a week off and we'll we'll have a great time as a family. So the first part of that, which is me going there, uh, worked out very very smoothly. While I was in Singapore. there was a meeting in mumbai that got set up a very important meeting for which global leaders from our company were flying in and they needed an india representative there 
I was the only person. Only guy. <laughs> oh God. Right. <laughs> This does not look good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just getting started. So, so I'm in Singapore. I'm 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 doing this presentation which I'm supposed to do, and then I have to have this weird conversation with my wife. But listen, may I sneak out for 24 hours to Mumbai and be back? And she's like, yeah. what, "What's wrong with you? Like, you will leave us in in another country." Uh, but, but but you know, it worked out fine. But I had to head back to Mumbai, do all the meetings over twenty four hours, so that I could take my flight back and go back to Singapore to my family, which was waiting angrily for me over there. Yeah, gosh, a lot of war stories. Things like this happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, how long was it before you had? Your first employee. So th- this is the fastest hire I've done in my life. Where I lined up a bunch of interviews, met met five candidates, made an on the spot offer, and asked this person who's still with us, by the way, to join the next day. And what's your next challenge? So the next piece that uh, I am working on, and and my boss is working on, I, I guess half the team is working on, is that we are very excited about podcasts. We are great. That's good news for me. <laughs> exactly, and 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 we are on a podcast. So uh, you know, in India, we say "nazar na lage," <laughs> but you've lived a charmed life in terms of you are you personify the growth story of India and the best of entrepreneurship. Did you? Ever feel the responsibility or being a provider is a burden? Let, let me tell you a story of okay, when great. I when I lost my father. Right, so it was it was uh, it was more than ten years back, and and at that time I was not working in India. I was working outside of India. My mother was in Delhi. It was a pretty big loss because you suddenly felt like you know. You've lost your air cover. Well, at least in my case, my father was my air cover, so that was gone. Uh, the feeling of burden sort of started after that, when when you know some parts of the family would very actively come and say to you that "ab sab apke upar hai," right? Mm. Uh, and, and and I was I was still young and and I didn't even How understand. How old were you? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, twenty-nine. Yeah. Uh, younger than that, maybe twenty-seven. So twenty. Uh, so this is, I guess, twelve years back. And the explicit sort of expectation was that you're the man of the family now, whatever that means. Uh, you leave whatever you have in Europe, come back, take care of things in in your local kingdom, and. Uh, And I, I didn't, I didn't really understand that, but I, I felt the pressure. But my mother stood up and said that nothing doing. Internally, there is uh, maybe you don't call it pressure, maybe you call it responsibility. It is something you got to do. Right, right, and that comes to, of course, the famous question on balance. <laughs> How do you get balance in your life? It's a question women have been asked and keep getting asked. When I hear you saying you love your work. and that's a big part of your passion how do you manage that with your love relationships it's a constant challenge deepa managing your time at at home and at work it's a constant challenge and uh, there have been there have been phases in in my work life that it required 100% attention which meant that the attention at home completely slipped but now that i reflect back on that i'm i'm trying to work towards something like that where mm-hmm. where there is time for myself there is 
adequate amount of time for family it's very important it's non negotiable now it, uh, to the to the extent that uh, uh, you know i'm uh, i'm happy to rethink how i spend time at work and and what i spend my time on so how has the pandemic affected you how has it affected your decision in pretty meaningful ways i'd say one the the importance of relationships in life is very very clear you realize who you're missing you know the friends you don't see you know i miss not seeing my mother uh, the things i value is spending time with with my daughter and my wife fundamentally I, i'm trying to reboot my own mental model so what is the meaning of life one way in which i'm 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 trying to just reboot myself is is uh, pay a lot of attention to my physical and mental health the other way in which uh, we're trying to reboot things is uh, also getting out of the city and seeing uh, you know can we operate out of let's say goa where uh, you know maybe the air is nicer uh, the beach is closer the the hills are greener i think the pandemic is very hard in a sense it's been it feels like we've been in a undeclared war and it's a relief that the whole issue of mental health is out in the yes. open so i really appreciate your sharing that because it's so important yeah in fact at spotify we very actively talk about it there are forums where uh, mental health experts will come in and 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 just share share you know what even what they're going through but also offer resources in terms of in, in case anyone wants to have a deeper conversation great because i think that's so important to destigmatize it's part of who we are yeah yeah 100% agree yeah. with you 100% yeah. tell us the importance of music in your life music does everything for me it can relax me it can motivate me it can excite me uh it can put me to sleep uh, yeah. so so <laughs> and i i have i have specific songs for many of these activities right so if i'm preparing for something very important uh then my go to song is eminem's lose yourself because it it sort of puts puts me in this underdog mindset of uh you know uh, looking at the odds and trying to sort of beat the odds so which one are you learning now oh. on your ukulele So right now I'm uh, I just started this a couple of days back it's called Whiskey in the Jar and it's actually an Irish folk song which was sequentially sort of covered by uh, by Jerry Garcia and then Thin Lizzy and then Metallica very well do you have your ukulele there I I do uh I don't know how much I can play here love to hear yeah. a little bit I- Lovely. What a great way to end. Thank you so much, Akshat, for sharing your life, your work, your passions, your love, and I wish you all the best in your relocation or your new adventure, I'd call it, new adventure. Thank you so much, Deepa. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you. postscript since we spoke akshat has actually picked up and made the move to goa 
pandemic has been cruel to so many who've lost their jobs. When work is a man's identity, job loss is like being caught in an earthquake. I met Akshay, head of a division in a large company in Mumbai. And as we chatted, I discovered he'd recently lost his job because of layoffs during COVID. So, A, I lost my job. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. What happened? Yeah, I mean, they were closing down a business division that I was a part of and they kind of had... Because moved. of COVID and how business was affected? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, that has affected me in that sense. And I'm particularly because... Uh, since my childhood, uh, I've been a very sort of competitive sort of individual and, you know, always sort of good. So, uh, for the first time in my life, I realized that I'm not really, you know, wired to cope with this kind of situation, which is a sort of a negative emotion in a way. Uh, which so is how also did it feel? How did it feel to... So, for the up? first uh, month, I think it almost felt like grieving, like you've lost something dear to you and, you know, it's almost like you... You really don't feel like talking to anybody and uh, I'll agree that I'm not used to coping with this kind of situation no matter how strong you are. Uh, right. How did you, I, did you cry? I mean, what was your process? No, I think what I did was I just reached out to similar people. I think I just, uh, by subconsciously or consciously, I think I just cut off all the people who I thought were in a better place. So I think I kind of started speaking to more people who were in the same situation, firstly in my company and also other people who'd lost their job who lost their jobs yeah so yeah. how are they coping up and obviously talking to them also sort of gave me a little bit of an inkling of what's happening and okay. i think everybody sort of started getting together around mental health issues and reaching out to each other so that was the time i think we started really sharing thoughts with each other like as men we really don't have a lot of outlets to sort of uh, share things uh, even with our uh, spouses or even with our family because we're just I think it's just wired that way. So that was a good thing because I was literally talking to them every day. When you face rejections after rejections, it's not... Uh, I also realized that it's also something I'm not used to sort of because earlier it was also because, you know, you had a little bit of say on what where you want to go. So let's just talk to anybody. Even if I knew from day one, I don't want to join this guy. Let me just talk to him. Uh, see what he has to say. So I think since then uh, until today I've been just uh, on it. Uh, I think it's I have my ups and downs in the day obviously uh, sure. but I can say that no, it's, not, it's not an easy thing. Yeah, it's No, no it isn't. But how has how is, how is this experience of loss changed you? So I think uh, and I have thought about it as well. Um, so during this time um, there have been I would say three kinds of people who I have kind of uh, spoken to, right? Or at least have experienced being spoken to. So there are these kinds of people who offer you unsolicited advice, you know. There are people who just call you and say, you know, uh, you should do this and you should start your own stuff and, you know, but you're in a different space. This is so interesting. So you said the three types of people. So the first one is unsolicited advice. Yeah, yeah. So how do you feel when people give you unsolicited advice? I think right now I've been very brutal. I just cut them off because I don't need that unless and yeah. until it's helping me. Uh, so unsolicited advice is one. Uh, then there are people who just talk about themselves. Uh, yeah. Who are the worst actually? <laughs> who are like, you know, they'll call you and they'll probably talk about the problems in their own jobs or something. They'll probably be in a better space, but they don't realize that, dude, this guy doesn't even have a job. 
and then there are the third kind of people who I kind of like talking to who are the empathetic ones and who are the ones who are really caring and it doesn't matter that what kind of situation they are in they could be in a better situation or worse situation or a similar situation but and I'm sure I mean I'm just I mean that's a cliche which I think that everybody says better times will come with everything that you're going through now have there been an impact on your relationships with your family have there been any changes this has been a very uh, deep experience for me this whole 7-8 months especially with the kids because earlier I never used to spend that much time with the kids so now I think uh, I'm fortunate enough to see two girls going up right and what they feel and what their emotions are but yeah at, at times it can get a little you know I would say you know you need your own space and you know you just don't have it so so I'm now used to it I've been almost 11 years of parenting 12 years of parenting but uh, but there, there are anxious moments it's a little bit of a stuck feeling that okay if like you know I could have probably used this time to do something else but I'm stuck here I think everyone goes through that you're just being honest about it that's the only difference yeah, yeah. yeah thank okay. you so much you were very honest and straightforward but uh, you know I know it must be really hard so I'm sending you a lot of love and good energy yeah, I'm, I'm just on it actually I'm just I'm actually just taking each day as it comes right now Losing a job is hard, but opening up about the struggle and reaching out to people is an act of courage, a path to healing and to finding a job. Fortunately, there's a postscript to Akshay's story. I just found out that Akshay found a job after six months. How are you feeling? Yeah, relieved, I guess. Congratulations on your willingness to talk about it, to share it. It's really inspiring because there's so many men and women hurting from losing the job. So what have you yeah. learned from this experience? You know, so in that whole process, I was like, uh, firstly, I lost the fear. I think I was a little fearful. And, and yeah. when when you're in that safe zone all, all your life, you're always a little fearful of losing that safe zone. <laughs> Yeah, so I completely absolutely. lost. I completely lost that fear. But it's also uh, overcoming your fear. Then I completely got over any ego I had about anything. So I was kind of just free of all the baggage, yeah, uh, which helped me. Which helped me a little bit. It was a little bit. And uh, I'm sure and it then, helped you a lot because otherwise yeah, you don't yeah. doubt. You stay in your shell. There's so much shame and yeah. there's so much fear. So I think reaching out to people without any ego. Yeah. is the biggest skill set which I thought was helpful and there is no shame in following up with anybody even like 6 to 7 times or 10 times because I don't care what he thinks about me anymore yes absolutely uh, and good luck you're a man you. of courage and thank you for coming back and giving me an update sure, it's been wonderful you. most men and employed women we end up spending more time at work than with our families it helps then to have workplaces that are friendly, that welcome us, that are designed to fit us and help us flourish. It's simple. When people flourish, businesses flourish. For example, Spotify creates a playful environment at work. It recruits women at the leadership level. It has maternity and paternity leave. But imagine creating a workspace that welcomes the LGBTQA plus community. Not a simple task. Parmesh Sahani took on this little challenge. 
Parmesh is Vice President at Godridge Industries and heads the Godridge India Culture Lab, an award-winning experimental idea space. I was really struck by the parallels to redesign workspaces for women so women can thrive. His book, Queeristan, is really worth reading. It's a business book told through stories and a guide to companies on how to become queer-friendly. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Lovely to see you. Parmesh, you've been at Godridge for 10 years. How did you achieve such radical change? One of the first things I think I did was I spoke I spoke up and I was like, you know, I happen to be gay and I want to make sure that I'm working for a company which, you know, includes me, uh, 6 to 10% of any population is queer. So if Godridge has 10,000 employees, it means 600 to 1,000 of us are queer. But at that time, uh, when I joined about 10 years ago, there weren't conversations around it and no one had spoken up. You were fearless and you had direct access to Nisha Godridge right at the top. What strikes me is that you were not afraid to ask direct questions, but without attacking. So can we look at our anti-discrimination policies and other policies to see if I'm being included? We recognize that our anti-discrimination policy did not cover LGBTQ people. So they were like, this is wrong, change it immediately. So I realized that the reason... 10 years ago, Godridge hadn't thought of it before was no one had raised it. And the moment I raised it, I realized that actually the company was very willing to go on the journey of change, which I all describe in great detail in Kyrgyzstan. We've taken Godridge on this journey of changing policies. Now, you know, we have same-sex partnership benefits, uh, uh, gender reaffirmation surgery, um, you know, in terms of policies and practices, it's, you know, I would say as good... But in many companies, the conversation is like this. And there's always like a person who's, who t- tries to object by pretending that he is well-meaning, but actually he wants to derail the conversation. So we'll say, you know, we need to provide for gender affirmation for anyone who wishes to transition. And this person will say, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. And you know what's coming. Uh, <laughs> he's like, you know, what if we offer this and then tomorrow 100 trans people join us and they all want to transition. And then we will be like, oh, we'll have to pay so much in transition. And what if after that, all of them leave us? Then we will have paid for so much in helping them transition and then we'll have no talent. You know, and it's it's ludicrous because first of all, people don't join an organization to transition. Uh, people join an organization to work. Um, and if you think just a few years ago, the same devil's advocate kind of people were making the same arguments against maternity leave. Because they were saying, oh, if we offer six months maternity leave, what if 100 women join us just to become pregnant and then leave us? Like women join organizations to become pregnant and then to leave the organization, right? It sounds so ridiculous. But people were having these conversations as if they were valid in boardrooms. So, you know, these are the challenges that still exist. What strikes me is that you didn't get derailed. You just stayed on course. Can you talk about the Godrich Culture Lab and the role it played in changing mindsets and making existing policies easier to actually implement? 
um, so the culture lab through the culture lab events we've been able to change the mindset of employees plays you know conversations performances etc or whether it's injecting queerness into other things um, so one of our early events was a play called Ek Madhav Bhag where a mother uh, discovers her son's diary and realizes I mean first of all she shouldn't have been reading it because <laughs> I, so any mom who's listening to this show, please, if you discover your child's diary, it's not an invitation to read it. <laughs> but in this case, the mother does and then realizes that her son is gay and has been hiding this from her. And so the whole play is a journey as to, she's like, you know, she thought she had been a great mother. And she's like, how bad have I been that my child is keeping this, you know, essential part of him hidden away from me because he thinks I won't understand. And of course, by the end of the play, everyone in the audience is sobbing. This mother on stage is crying. You know, all the audience members are crying. And it's one big cry fest. But what happens after this is amazing. So, you know, all the... There were so many Godrej employees in the audience and they come up, they came up to me in tears and they were like, I don't know if my daughter is straight or lesbian. I'm just going to go home and hug her. And I think that's the power of culture, right? No amount of white papers I would have written on why inclusion is important can have that impact of one 45-minute play. So I think, you know, culture, cultural interventions can really, really move you. But has it been a cakewalk? No. I mean, obviously, right? But, um, but have people changed fundamentally? Yes. I mean... I have had senior leaders come up to me as well and say, Parmesh, five years ago, uh, we, we, you know, didn't know what to make of you. And we really didn't understand this whole LGBT thing. But just being with you, um, attending your events, listening. Parmesh, how do you judge whether there's been progress? I think uh, there are two things that really go to show that you care. One is the more queer people you hire. If you don't hire more and more queer people, I mean, then all your good intent um, is, you know, just that. It's intent that without action. And the second thing is, you already have queer people in your organization. So how do you create an environment in which they can, um, if they choose to come out, um, be their best selves every day in the same way that straight people are? Um, you know, straight people aren't coming to work. I don't know that many straight people who come to work hiding their straightness or with the emotional burden of what if someone comes to know I'm straight or things like that, right? <laughs> they just come to work assuming that they're living in a straight environment. What a powerful way of explaining what the straight world takes for granted. And obviously no company has been able to overcome all the exclusions that exist by disability, by caste, by religion, by gender. And what you've achieved at Godridge is a real tribute to your tenacity as well as to your strategy. Pramesh, what key behaviors need to be practiced for inclusion in a company, in a large company? I think love and acceptance is the bedrock, but also solidarity and just empathy and an understanding. And we all don't have to agree and we all don't have to join multiple social movements. That's my thing. But I think a lot about allyship. Just like we argue for women's inclusion, you make a business case for inclusion of the LGBTQ community. Can you talk about that? The global LGBTQ market is $5 trillion worth, for example. Um, in India, it's about $200 billion, right? If you are really 
you know, investing in inclusion and, you know, hiring queer people or creating this atmosphere and culture where, you know, we can thrive. I talk about the workplace as a family. Second last chapter is other worlds are possible. Other worlds are possible. Yes, indeed. Other worlds are possible. In times of great cultural and economic flux, everyone hurts, men, women and children. Every man is different, every woman is different, every human being and every family is different. And the only way through pain within families is through dropping the pretense, connecting with emotions, talking and listening without attacking, pausing, learning how to negotiate and renegotiate, pausing, staying in conversation and working through the fears and disappointments. And for all of you who are employers, how can you create a loving and accepting work environment and achieve high productivity? join us in breaking open the conversations about men as providers in a time of great flux and stress within your families, colleges, workplaces, play spaces and engage with us on social media. Ask one of these questions and listen deeply without giving opinions. Just start the conversation. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you use your role as income provider to assert power and control to get your way in the family? Or, on a scale of 1 to 10, do you express appreciation to the income provider for their role, even though you may also be a provider? Or, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much confidence do you have in yourself internally in being a provider? Or, if you're a job provider, on a scale of 1 to 10, how loving and accepting is the work environment that you have created with one being fear and 10 being loving and accepting workspace. In our next episode, we explore how it feels to be in love with life. Come and listen as I talk with one man, Devraj Sanyal, Managing Director and CEO of Universal Music Group and EMI Music, as well as MD of Universal Music Publishing House in India and South Asia. This is Deepa Narayan. Join me in slow conversation. Listen deeply. Share your stories with others and us. Do subscribe to our channel on Hubhopper, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts or wherever you are currently listening. Our website is whatsaman.com. You can reach Dr. Deepa Narayan at DeepaVOP on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center, New Delhi. The opinions, findings and conclusions stated are those of what's a man, masculinity in India and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Our partners are Hubhopper, the Gender Lab, who work with adolescent boys and girls on gender awareness, Chup Circles, Safe Spaces for Conversation and Youth Ki Awaaz, the largest online platform for youth voices. Yeah. What's a man? 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 Oh man, hey man, good 
Batman, Batman, Superman, be a man. What's a man? What's a man? What's a man? What's a man? Strong man, weak man, manly man, manly man, big man, be a man. What's a man? What's a man? What's a man? What's a man? Oh.